And now, Box 39 Red Button is handing over its slot to one of its stablemate programs. Welcome to Bill's Big Bag of Musicologies, where we cast our ears back to musical selections from past editions of Box 39 and the essential analyses and commentaries by Guppy Productions' very own aid. That is to say, me. This is Cone Radio on 106.6 FM. Here we have the musicologies from an episode of Box 39 on the topic of alternative Christmas presents. A little bit of Monica in my life A little bit of Erica by my side A little bit of Rita's all I need A little bit of Tina's what I see A little bit of Sandra in the sun A little bit of Mary all night long A little bit of Jessica, here I am A little bit of you makes me your man Millionaire Alan and I had become good friends after meeting on an internet message board and during long opinionated chats, finding that we both shared the same deep and detailed interest in the history of rock music. Bored of giving people conventional Christmas presents, he flew me over to the United States and we drove up to rural upstate New York. He pulled up at the gate of a dairy farm on a country road and we got out of the car. Without explanation, we strode across lush green tree-filled fields dotted with cows. He stopped and consulted a GPS device before declaring that we were standing exactly where the main stage at the Woodstock Festival had been in 1969. This, he said, was the exact spot where Jimi Hendrix had set fire to his guitar in the iconic climax to his Woodstock appearance. This encounter with history was his Christmas present to me. After a long silence, I told him, for the umpteenth time, that I believed Jimi Hendrix had always been overrated and that John McLaughlin was a faster player and Larry Coriel was more inventive. We trudged back to the car in silence. A little bit of Monica in my life A little bit of Erica by my side A little bit of Rita's all I need A little bit of Tina's what I see A little bit of Sandra in the sun A little bit of Mary all night long A little bit of Jessica, here I am A little bit of you Maria and I were passionately in love, and her attempts to tame me and rein me in had me tumbling head over heels. 
But it was not to be. We spent that Christmas together, and, emotionally creative as ever with her gift-giving, Maria arranged for a professional costumier to join us and teach me how to tie a necktie in eight different ways, even though I hadn't worn one or even worn a standard shirt and collar for 35 years and had no plans to. She said that her gift symbolized my innate respect for tradition, despite my wild way of living. And that was why she loved me. Alas, the session dragged on for five hours. I nailed the Van Wyck knot and half and full Windsor knots, the Merovingian knot, the Trinity knot and the Eldridge knot. But after several hours, I still couldn't get the hang of the Prince Albert knot or the four-in-hand knot. It was very irritating. The atmosphere became tense. The costumier and I got into a shoving match. I eventually left in a huff, having mastered only six of the knots. Maria and I never saw each other again. seen as a man for whom it's hard to find a Christmas present. One year, this challenge spurred Sharon into making an extraordinary effort. She showed me a large jar filled with murky yellow liquid containing what appeared to be a shriveled eel. A surgeon gave it to an Italian priest who smuggled it from St. Helena to Corsica. The priest's family sold it to a London bookseller who then sold it to a collector in America. In 1927, the jar was exhibited at the Museum of French Arts in New York. It passed hands several times before being purchased for £3,000 in 1977 by Professor John Latimer. Sharon had bought it from the professor's daughter. And now it was mine, she explained triumphantly. Merry Christmas, she said. However, I was underwhelmed. There was a long silence. I asked her, you do know that the French government has never accepted it as being Napoleon Bonaparte, right? It may not be what you think it is. Another long silence. Sharon was a bit deflated by my scepticism, but always keen to look on the bright side, she said, I realise that, but it has been x-rayed, Adrian, so we do know it's definitely someone's penis. Listening to Bill's Big Pack of Musicologies, celebrating the genius of Aid's musical selections and the unusual things he says. I wanted to give my wife a simple but poignant Christmas present last year, as I knew she was very much an it's-the-thought-that-counts kind of person. 
so I presented her with a photo I'd come across when rummaging through boxes in the loft. There was a whole album from a holiday we'd had, she and her sister and me and my brother in Mallorca, back in the 70s, before we were married and before the island had become massively commercialised. It was there that we had fallen in love. Indeed, two months after returning to Britain, we had tied the knot, still woozy from the whirlwind romance and intense intimacies that had played out on the secluded rock-strewn beaches of the idyllic Mediterranean island. I'd had the photo framed, and on Christmas morning, I handed it to her and kissed her on the forehead. That's you and me on the beach in Mallorca, moments after we made love for the very first time, I explained. My brother took the photo. Bless him, he almost caught us in the act of shagging. Remember that? No, I do not remember it, my wife said. That's a picture of you and my twin sister. One Christmas, a friend of mine wanted to give me a beautiful chestnut-coloured thoroughbred horse. It had a delicate head, slim body, broad chest and a short back. It had a refined, athletic build, long neck, powerful hindquarters and an easy stride. It was a magnificent specimen at 16 hands high and weighing about 1,000 pounds. It could reach speeds of around 40 miles an hour. Its back legs were particularly long, which amplified thrust as it galloped. Although it was a powerful, muscular horse, it was able to move with grace and agility. One could imagine thousands of pounds in potential stud fees. However, I noticed undigested long fibre in its droppings. Then I saw it pouching its feed in its cheeks and occasionally quidding, which means dropping partially chewed hay. I looked at its teeth and, sure enough, it had halitosis and I could see some inflammation of the gums. It looked to me like equine odontoclastic hypercementosis. I foresaw hundreds of pounds in veterinary fees that my friend was presumably not going to fork out for. So I told him I didn't want his Christmas present. A bullet dodged, methinks. As wise people say, always look a gift horse in the mouth. I'm a jazz expert. Wivenhoe residents have paid me a rather modest consultation fee to come here to define jazz for you. And it's a very, very difficult question. Very difficult. So, in view of the modesty of the fee I've been paid, what I'm going to do is to throw the question right back at you. Here goes. Residents of Wivenhoe, I'm asking you, what is jazz? Thank you. Bill's Big Bag of Jazz Onions, every Sunday night from 11pm, here on 106.6 FM, Cone Radio.
A chess club friend of mine on holiday in Bolivia texted me saying he'd found me the perfect Christmas present. He knew that I had a collection of 40 or more chess sets. Every single one of them had traditional Staunton-style pieces. Quite frankly, I despise non-standard sets like the Lewis Chessman or Harry Potter characters or decorative Game of Thrones-themed sets or Japanese samurai-style pieces. I simply hate them and he knew it. I texted him back and said, Great, as long as the set you found is Staunton-style and not some atrocity like Japanese samurai-style pieces. So it seemed strange when he returned from South America just before Christmas and gave me a large, gaudily painted Japanese samurai-style set of chess pieces. I was aghast. He set them up on the board for me, but I was adamant I didn't want them. He tipped them all rather recklessly into a bag, said I could keep the board, and left. He had a peculiar grin on his face, as if he'd known this was how I'd react. I noticed he'd left the box behind. In it were two samurai warrior wives. Queens, I suppose, one of each colour for when a pawn gets promoted. Later I realised that the coloured lacquer easily washed off and when you ground down the remaining chalky material, it turned out that the two pieces that had been inadvertently left behind were made of 98% pure cocaine. Mmm, Merry Christmas. ago my ex-wife, although we were still married at the time, gave me a special gourmet culinary world buffet lunch for my Christmas present the day I got back after one of my many long solo globetrotting trips, which I invariably made without her, about which she had been feeling growing resentment in recent years. She served me Japanese shirako, which were the sperm sacs of pufferfish. They had a sweet custody taste. Then she watched me eat boiled tuna eyeballs, which tasted a little like squid. Then she brought me balut, a Philippine dish which was fertilized duck egg with its partly developed embryo inside boiled alive and then eaten from the shell where you'd crunch down on what's inside, feathers, bones, beak and all. This was followed by Cambodian crispy tarantulas, which tasted a little bit like crab. Finally, she bought me a plate of wheat lacoche from Mexico, which was corn kernels where fungus had turned them into tumour-like growths covered in blue-black spores. While most people would just throw it out, the Mexicans call it wheat lacoche, or sleeping excrement, and enjoy the woody, earthy flavour of the fungus. When I asked what was for pudding, my wife handed me divorce papers. This is Cone Radio on 106.6 FM. Here we have the musicologies from an episode of Box 39 on the topic of April Fool's Day. Went to 
Fool's pranks on people has to have an edge to it, if you ask me. In 1997, I took my friend's car and parked it in my garage. I then alerted her that it was missing and she went to the police to report the car stolen. By the time she had returned to her house with a couple of police detectives, I had returned her car to its parking space in front of her house. The disgruntled police went into the house and saw April Fool's tell the police car stolen which I had written on the whiteboard on her fridge. And they saw a bong and an eighth of hashish I'd put on the kitchen counter. It was just priceless. said playing April Fool's pranks on people has to have an edge to it. In 2001 I wrote an email pretending to be a director of a multinational company who was inviting my friend for an interview having been tipped off by a headhunter. My friend caught a plane to Paris from Heathrow at her own expense. This was actually on the 1st of April lest we forget and then forked out 200 euro for a taxi ride to a small town about 100 kilometers from Paris where she found the business, the building, the address did not exist. I had made it up completely. She rang me from the little French town in the middle of nowhere and I said, gotcha, and she was not amused. Absolutely priceless. A federal deputation laid a deadly ambush When Bonnie and Clyde came walking in the sunshine A half a dozen turbines opened up on them 
You're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Musicologies, an intriguing compilation of Aid's musical choices and the odd commentaries he thinks we need to hear. said playing an April Fool's prank needs to have an edge for it to be truly funny. In 2005 I phoned a bomb threat through to the school I used to go to when I was a kid and watched from my bedsit across the road as all the school children evacuated to the playground. I then phoned the school again and explained that the tall building next to the school playground, the one with thousands of square meters of pane glass windows, was also going to be blown up by a bomb. As the children were being evacuated again, I rang the school again and said that there were car bombs at both entrances to the school. It was an absolute classic. Fool's prank with an edge to it. It was in 2008. I got hold of some peanut oil and put a few drops in a cup of coffee my peanut allergic friend was about to drink. As he gulped the last of the coffee, he could read the words at the bottom of the cup which said, You have been poisoned, which he immediately clocked as being an April Fool's joke because he had already mentioned that it was the 1st of April. He laughed, but he was being premature and had not understood the true nature of the prank. Indeed, he he never did see the funny side of it, and he reacted so badly we had to take him to the casualty ward at the local hospital. It's the edge to the prank that makes it funny. Thank you. 
Here's another April Fool's prank with an edge. This one is from 2011. I stuffed a couple of sacks with second-hand clothes from a charity shop and threw in a few pieces of rotting meat that I allowed to get really pongy in the shed and then trussed them up into a certain shape before putting them inside a couple of large black bin liners and gaffer taped it in such a way so it looked like a human corpse with a head, hands tied behind its back and gaffer taped its feet together. I then put this in the boot of a friend's car, which he found when I asked, What's that smell? He opened the boot and immediately puked. April Fool, I shrieked delightedly. Here's an edgy April Fool's prank I pulled in 2015. I used photo editing software, a large jar, food colouring, a computer printer and paper that I laminated. Using the photo editor I blended two pictures of my friend together to create a flat image of his head, which I then laminated and submerged in the jar. When the flattened image was inserted into the curved jar, along with the distortion from the coloured water, it gave the illusion of a decapitated head in a jar of preserving fluid. I placed this in the fridge when he was away and would have loved to have seen his wife's face when she opened the fridge and looked in. But alas, sometimes with edgy April Fool's pranks, you just have to take pride in your work, even if you miss out on the carnage that you cause.
This is Cone Radio on 106.6 FM. Here we have the musicologies from an episode of Box 39 called Normal Service Will Be Resumed Shortly. It's a little-known fact that Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart of Eurythmics fame started out as teachers at Philip Morant School in Colchester. Annie Lennox taught art and craft because the school already had Kate Bush as the music teacher. Dave Stewart taught woodwork and made his first guitar while his students ran laps around the football pitch. It's also a little-known fact that Lennox and Stewart are now back at the school working as supply teachers now that the Eurythmics are no longer famous. David Stewart is teased mercilessly by the 21st century Colchester youth because of his funny little 1980s beard. Turn the page And time that I'd rearrange Just a day or two Close my, close my, close my eyes Then I couldn't find a way So I settled for one day To believe in you Tell me, tell me, tell me lies Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies Tell me lies, tell me, tell me lies Oh no, no, you can't disguise You can't disguise Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies A lot of North East Essex folk are unaware of the fact that the key members of Fleetwood Mac actually came from the Colchester area. While it's common knowledge that Mick Fleetwood and John McVie came from California in the USA, it comes as some surprise to many Essex music lovers that Lindsay Buckingham was born in Stanway, Stevie Nicks was born in Brightlingsea, 
And Christine McVie was born in Layer Road, Colchester, under the shadow of the old football stadium. Their 1977 album, Rumours, was actually about the shocking state of affairs with regard to gossip, backstabbing and petty personal vendettas in the offices of Colchester Borough Council in the infamous Rowan House in Sheepen Road, something that almost none of the 40 million people who bought the album realised. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies Susan, well done. You just need to squeeze in the, the fact that it's on Tuesdays at 8pm. Can you do that for me? Here at Box 39 we have such creative and inquisitive listeners. Entering into the spirit of things, this week several listeners have sent in their queries along with musical requests. Have you ever seen the rain? This query was sent to us by a listener in Stanway, philosopher and amateur meteorologist Alice Fluck. Well Alice, technically no one has ever seen rain. Water molecules absorb certain wavelengths in the electromagnetic spectrum and scatter others. What we see or perceive as light are the scattered photons hitting photoreptor cells in our retinas, not the water itself. If that answer strikes you as overly pretentious, allow me to offer a mine is bigger than yours type answer. Listen to me, you moaning mini Brits with your occluded fronts and cancelled cricket matches. Unless you have seen the kind of rain that fell upon Bill and Ian as they tried to visit the Buddhist temple of Borobudur in central Java in April 2018 at Cone Radio's expense, then you quite simply have never seen the rain. Listening to Bill's Big Pack of Musicologies, an astounding compilation of Aid's choices of music and the unexpected things he says. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Baby, don't hurt me. And now a query from a listener in Earls. Arlesford, never quite sure how to pronounce it. Thank you, John Baskell, for writing in to make your query. What is love? 
John asks, what is love? Well, love can be understood in evolutionary terms as part of the survival instinct. Strong emotional bonds between organisms increase their chances of surviving long enough to procreate, thereby facilitating the continuation of the species. It's easy to see how natural selection favours individuals who form such attachments. Love is also mostly found in the brain. Studies in neuroscience have identified a number of chemicals that appear to be associated with feelings of love. They can be broken down into two distinct phases. Dopamine, norepinephrine and serotonin are most commonly found during the early intense attraction stage of a relationship. Oxytocin and vasopressin seem to be more closely linked to long-term bonding. What is sliver of sliced ice, you glimmer, velveteen veneered, in pearly, shinily light luster. Sizzlingly, you sting the tongue, awash with mingled co-tastes, soaking up the flavors of assorted vegetables. Paradox. You are partly complimentary, part pinnacle, onion, layered Ball of lace, tender globe, weeping, knifed, you split into many snips and cuboid diamonds, bringing tears to my eyes. single 20-something bachelor's degree graduate on the road, travelling alone, homesick, jilted, unlucky in love, misunderstood by friends of three years standing, in a vague and staring into the middle distance existential slow motion crisis, wondering what it means to be a snowflake. Is it the marvel of having a unique and intricate pattern to your personhood and a life-charting narrative that only you know? Or is a snowflake something beautiful that melts tragically when life's temperature rises and decisions about starting internships and starting first novels must be made? Well, Colchester has numerous coffee houses, cafes and quiet unpopular pubs with windows you can stare out of and fairly good Wi-Fi. If you're travelling aimlessly and need a stop-off in a town that'll have little to distract you so you can breathe and count your emotional bruises and send out pictures of your coffee cup and of rain spattering on the window using your tablet or smartphone, come to Colchester and leave when your batteries are recharged.
philosophy a lot, right? Like, people have a hard time conceptualizing that because they think once you have a life philosophy, you're supposed to live with that forever. But that's, I think that's really stupid because I think philosophies are a lot like t-shirts. You should wear whatever fits the occasion. And what your occasion is, is the goals that you're trying to achieve. Like, if you, you're not going to wear the same thing that you wear to the beach to get a job at J.P. Morgan. So why would you use the same philosophy you have at the beach as the same philosophy as you'd have at J.P. Morgan? They're incompatible. you should soak the conker in vinegar for a month before baking it in an oven for three hours. Then put them in nail varnish remover, leave it for a day. After that, let them dry out for a few days in an airing cupboard. Alternatively, you can cut across the top of the conker in both directions, peel back the skin at the top using a small knife and then scoop out the center. Fill the hollow skin with nuts, bolts and washers. Mix up some fiberglass resin with hardener and pour this into the conker skin. As this is setting, push the flaps of the skin back into place at the top. Wipe off any excess resin and allow 24 hours to cure. Use an electric drill to make a hole for the string and touch up any marks with acrylic paint. Why, you ask? Well, because when it comes to serious conkers, yep, you guessed it. The winner takes it all.
It's your Beatles Big Bag of Music Ologies. I suppose it's a kind of inverted bucket list. Working as a prison warden, eating wasabi ice cream, opening a beer bottle with my eyelid, owing money to loan sharks, driving an unrestored 1974 Simca estate car, playing golf with Lindsey Graham, removing microphones from Rudy Giuliani's underpants, going youth hosteling with Michael Gove, tweeting daft conspiracy theories in the middle of the night, swimming in the Ganges River in India, eating Vietnamese soft-boiled fetal duck, watching Celebrity Apprentice, flying with EasyJet, reading The Art of the Deal, listening to Japanese death thrash metal, working in Kuwait City, holidaying in Tijuana, living in Chad, living in North Korea, and, until it jolly well sorts itself out, living in America. And that's all we have time for. You have been listening to Bill's Big Bag of Musicologies. Musicologies is a guppy production for Cone Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. Music